Weekly Signals, every Tuesday morning from 8 to 9 a.m. Join me, Mike Casper, and Nathan Callahan for the best in reality-based radio. That's Weekly Signals. Check out the website at weeklysignals.com. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. You're listening to KUCI at 88.9 FM in Irvine and online at KUCI.org. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity and From Victim to Victor, a step-by-step guide for ending the nightmare of identity theft. She sits as an advisor to the State of California Office of Privacy Protection, and she's a sheriff reserve here in Orange County. She's testified many times in Congress and the California legislature on privacy and identity theft issues, and you may have seen her on TV on Dateline, 48 Hours, NBC, ABC, CNN, O'Reilly, Geraldo, Montel, a lot of other shows. And uh, she did her own 90-minute PBS special last year called Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. Well, we have one of my very favorite guests. We have had her on every year since we've had this show. We always have her on about this time after the legislature in California has made up new laws and done some crazy things with privacy. We always have to have Joan McNagg back. She is wonderful. And I'm going to tell you, if you haven't heard her before, you're going to be thrilled to hear her about all the great things that we're doing in California. And California really does lead the nation in privacy protection. One reason is because we have actually in our own constitution a guarantee of privacy, which many other states don't have, and we don't have it federally. However, Another reason is because we have Joan McNabb and we have the Office of Privacy Protection, which is one of two in the country, and it was the very first Office of Privacy Protection. So I'm excited to let you know a little bit about Joan McNabb, and then we're going to talk with her and you're going to hear great things. So Joan McNabb is a Certified Information Privacy Professional for Government. She is also the Chief of the California Office of Privacy Protection, and I'm going to tell you about her, but you can also go to privacy.ca.gov. Joan is the chief of the California Office of Privacy Protection, and that office was created by legislation and opened back in 2001. At that time, it was the very first and only Office of Privacy Protection in the country. Now she has helped us uh, open an office in Wisconsin, and we'll find out if she's doing any more of that kind of help. It is a resource and advocate on identity theft protection and other privacy issues. In addition to providing information and education for consumers, the Office of Privacy Protection also publishes privacy practice recommendations for businesses and entities like the government and other organizations. Joan is, as I said, is a certified information privacy professional, meaning that she took the test that I had to take too. I think she had to take two of them because she had to take the regular one and the government one. And she is co-chair of the International Association of Privacy Professionals for the Government Working Group. She also serves on the Privacy Advisory Committee to the United States Department of Homeland Security. And she is a fellow of the Poneman Institute. And as you know, we've we've interviewed Larry Poneman about the wonderful surveys he has, and I'm thrilled to also be a fellow. Not only that, but she is a frequent speaker at privacy conferences and seminars and all sorts of things. She is just not only uh, a terrific a privacy expert, but she is a terrific person. I think she is wonderful. I've been so thrilled to consider her my friend for now many years, since 2001 when I first met her. So I want to thank you, Joan, for joining us from your busy schedule. Well, thank you, Mari, for that really glowing introduction. My goodness. Well, I forgot to tell everybody that you really walk on water as well. Yeah, right. All that, too. 
<laughs> anyway, so let's tell my audience, if they didn't get to hear you before, let's tell them what the Office of Privacy Protection does, all the great things. I told a little bit about it, but you can tell about the mission and everything they do. Yeah, we are a small office. I say we're lean, but, but not mean. Uh, currently six positions, six people. Everything's smaller in government these days, uh, and, but we're just as dedicated as ever. We, we are not an enforcement agency. We don't enforce any privacy laws. What we do is basically everything we do is advoca- education and advocacy. We, we provide people with individuals who have privacy questions or problems with information, with assistance. Sometimes if they're having real troubles with an organization, we'll contact the organization, the company or, or agency and you know, try to help them resolve it more rapidly. And we also direct a lot of our, our educational efforts to sort of the, the other side, that is the organizations, the businesses and other organizations that seem to have more and more of our personal information. And we, we provide them with training and best practice recommendations and, and how to handle personal information in ways that respect individual privacy rights. Now, I know that you have been all over the place uh, physically, <laughs> and also the office has been in, in several different locations, meaning different parts of the California government. Why don't you tell us how that started, like from when first you were a director, now that you're a chief, which is pretty exciting, but kind of explain to us how that evolved. Well, it, it just various little government reorgs. Our, our mission has remained always the same. We started off as part of the Department of Consumer Affairs, you know, which makes a kind of sense, and that's where we were for the first several years. Then we, in an interesting concept, were, were joined up with the State Information Security Office, which is the office that sets policies for state government, and so we're sort of like privacy and security, consumers, and government focus. It was a, an interesting pairing. And then uh, that marriage came to an end. And <laughs> but it wasn't a, a hostile fight. No, 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 no. We got along very well with our security buddies. And in fact, they um, that office, which is still called the Office of Information Security, took take, now has statutory responsibility for setting privacy policies for California state government agencies as well. And we've been acting as in a sort of consulting capacity to that office as they start off with the privacy program. I mean, fortunately, I want people to know, state agencies have long been subject to a number of laws protecting privacy. So it's not like there has not been any attention in state government. It's that now the some policies that may be setting some specific ways to implement certain aspects of the laws are, are, are being issued, and more and more training is being provided. You know, I remember when you helped the state of Wisconsin set up their Office of Privacy Protection. Uh, how about, are there any other states that are doing that well, that you know of? Not really a consumer privacy office. There are, in fact, few states that even have a state government privacy office that, that gives policy direction to state government. They're about I think fewer than half a dozen. But one thing I think is interesting in that regard is Ohio, for example, and also, I believe, Arizona, both of which do have a state privacy officer. They, are all, they also are seeking to provide, and the, the Ohio Privacy Office website does provide, information for, for the public as well, you know, sort of consumer information in addition to their main function of providing guidance to the government, which is a very important function. A lot of states do have a certain amount of, let's say, identity theft information available through their attorney general's office or through a consumer protection office, but not, except for Wisconsin and our office, there isn't another state that has a sort of full-spectrum privacy office for the public. Huh. That's amazing. Now, does Wisconsin have legislation that created it just like we do? They were created by executive order based on our legislation. So the governor created that, that office. Hmm. And when, when they were brand new, which was just a couple of years ago, I think they're about three years old, two of their staff came out and spent a week with us sort of shadowing, shadowing and training. And so when, when we were arranging for their visit, I, I suggested that, did I tell you this about the cheese? No. I, I said, well, why don't you bring some of your cheese? And we'll, <laughs> we'll have a little cheese tasting. And so one of my staff called the, the happy cows people, uh-huh. and 
we got some posters that were old posters from that campaign that talked about Wisconsin and California, and we got some inflatable cows, and we had our cheese tasting, and <laughs> we didn't really vote, but I really liked one of theirs, which was chocolate cheese. Oh, you know, I was a badger. I My undergraduate, oh my yeah, I went to the University of Wisconsin. As I a, do hear that. Yeah, <clears throat> as, an, as an undergrad, and so what we used to do all the time is go out to the country and get cheese and bread and, and have picnics out there and go hiking. Cheese was really wonderful out there. So, yeah, that that's, and they were these cheese heads, you know, yes, at I these football <laughs> I never did, you know. I wore oh, my dear. I wore my Bucky Badger shirt, but I no, I didn't do that. But um, yeah, and they're having cold weather now. They already have snow. Oh my gosh! You know, I mean, it's just amazing. But anyway, so so we we know that we are one of two states that even has this Office of Privacy Protection. But because we're such a large state, we have a lot of effect on the rest of the country. Why don't you talk about that? Because that's amazing. I'm always sending people that I do you know, business with and that I'm consulting with, I always send them to the recommended practices because we really do affect the rest of the country. Why don't you talk about that? Well, California has, as you pointed out, um, been a, a leader in the U.S. in privacy protection, both in in laws, state laws, in, in our Constitution, in some of our court decisions. Uh, and I think it's sort of interesting that... Um, there seems to be a relationship between California's role in consumer advocacy in general as being kind of a leader, but even particular in privacy because of the connection between privacy and technology. You know, a lot of the wonderful uh, technological innovations, which originated, you know, here in Silicon Valley and other parts of California, have great things to offer, really open up opportunities, and also many of them raise some new kinds of concerns and issues about privacy. So we're sort of working on on the that aspect of technology all the time in California. And that isn't a new phenomenon, in fact. I think it's interesting um, that one of the best-known sort of watchword definitions of privacy is from Justice Brandeis about the right to be let alone. Right you know, back in the late 19th, early 20th century. And he actually wrote the article, the law review article that included that that formulation um, because of a new technology that was seen as privacy invasive. Do you yeah, know the camera. Yeah, the camera, <laughs> the, the, the relatively instant camera compared to the Matthew Brady type with the, where you had to stand for 10 minutes in this big, black powder on a on a tray flashed so you couldn't sneak up and take somebody's picture. Right. But with a relatively instant sort of box camera type, you could, and somebody took a picture at a wedding in someone's home, and it got published in the newspaper, and that was regarded as intrusive. And and at that point, the, the law had not kept up with the technology, exactly. just kind of like where we are now. Exactly. The law just has not kept up with the technology. I want to introduce you again. We are speaking, if you're listening and you want to know more about this wonderful woman, we are speaking with Joan McNabb, who is the chief of the California Office of Privacy Protection, which was the very first office in the entire nation to have an Office of Privacy Protection in our government. And you can learn more at privacy.ca.gov. But we're going to come back to her right now. So, Joan, also the fact that we're such a large state, when companies do business with consumers who live in the state of California, they have to follow our laws, don't they? Um, and not only our laws, but that's true in other states as well. But the, yes, some, and you're right. The point you're making, I think, is that when California has adopted a privacy protective law, it often gets extended to other states, even if even if they don't have a similar law. For example, in 2003, one of the new laws uh, was regarding um, protecting social security numbers. Right, and it said that. You, you can't publicly post or display social security numbers, and specifically, you can't print them on an ID card used for access to goods or services, right. like your student ID. Or your like, health insurance. Or your health plan yeah. ID. And so major multi-state health insurance companies, since they're going to have to make a change and use a different member 
insured number. Right, a random number, right? Yeah, they, they changed it nationwide, not just for Californians. So everybody got to benefit from that. Yeah, exactly. And that's, that's what's so beautiful about California doing that because they might, they're might they not going to have 50 different kinds of uh, ID cards for mm-hmm. the health insurance company. They might as well change it for everybody, so everybody benefited. Yep. Same thing with our first security breach legislation. Even though uh, we were the very first state to have that security breach notification law, because of the fact that other government agencies and AGs were upset that they knew that... Californians were being notified, for example, of the Choice Point security breach. They said, hey, you do it here. So again, all the good things that the California legislators have done in privacy has really trickled down all the way across the nation. Yeah, and in the the breach notice law, even before the, I believe now, 44 other states, I think, have... Yeah, 44 or 45, I think. ...have their own law in addition to ours. Um, even before that, most major companies, if they had a breach that included Californians and then the people in other states who didn't have a law, they notified everybody. Right. It, it made good business sense. Right. So all the good things that, that we're doing in California really do affect, and we have people listening across the country, so we just want you to know to thank Joan and thank our California legislature for all the good stuff that's that's happening. So let's talk now, talking about laws all the time. 2009, I'm seeing here there was quite a few uh, pieces of legislation dealing with privacy that were introduced. So let's talk first about what was introduced and what passed and what didn't pass and what might be coming. Want to go through yeah. those? Well, you know, actually, um, I, I want to first mention a couple that pa- that took effect last year. Okay. Because some of them have been added on to, so it it kind of makes sense to, to start with them. Okay, perfect. Um, one is is a, a an improvement in the uh, security freeze law. Right. You know that we've had a, a law for about five years, or I think a little more than that, that lets lets us freeze our credit files to deny access to them without our permission in most cases. And the, the charge for that, for, for freezing your files, has been $10. And you, since you have to do it with all three of the major credit reporting agencies, that's $30. Well, that got changed effective um, in 2009, so it's been in effect since January. That got changed to, for people over 65 or 65 or older, it's only $5. And also to take effect faster. And it lowered the cost of being able to unfreeze it when you want to go out and seek credit from a particular uh, individual. So those little tweaks were, were very nice. And in that case, we were actually following what some other states did. Right. We had the first freeze law. And then when other states came along later, some of them had it cheaper. Right. So we went back and tried to line up with the later improvements. So we were learning from them in that case. I think New Jersey has one that's even, what, what is it, 30 minutes or something? Yeah, there do? are some that are even quicker. You know, I don't know if you remember this, but many years ago, back in, I think it was the late 1990s, I testified before the Senate Judiciary Committee, and I asked them, and I talked with uh, people in Experian at the time when I was, after I'd gone through my own identity theft, and I said, you know, we need some way to just lock up the credit because I could not get creditors to stop issuing credit to my imposter, even though I had a fraud alert on my credit report. And by the way, for those who don't know what these things are, a a fraud alert is a statement on your credit report that says, don't issue credit without calling me first at this number. And then you give your number. And I always tell... Or checking ID, because you don't, in a short-term fraud alert, have to call. Right. And, And I always tell people if you're going to do it put your cell phone number on there so if you're out on a Sunday and you want to get you know uh, a new car or you're at Macy's and you want to get that 10% discount you know you're not going to get instant credit unless you give your cell phone so you can answer it right then and there but at the time I I had these relentless uh, this relentless imposter who just kept going and credit Credit grantors were not even paying attention. So at the time, I recommended way back in the late 1990s that we have a thing, and this is what I told Dennis Rice from Experian at the time, and he was in charge of governmental um, 
you know, relationships. relationships. Yeah. Yeah. So I said, why can't we have a thing where if I want to go in and get a car, I have a password that I can type in, okay, on a computer right at the de- car dealership or right where I am that I give that password and they release it. Otherwise, they don't. That's what my original thought was. And that's almost what we have and what we're probably moving toward. Yeah. I mean, there is no reason in the world why it can't be automated, you know, yep. which New Jersey has done. But but what ended up happening in California is we, you know, we had this three-day thing, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, and how many days are we at now? Well, no, it went from five to three. Five that is, to from, three. From when you say, I want to lift it for a period of time, because I'm going to go out and apply for credit. Uh, they used to have five days to respond. Now they have three days. Right. And then there's, and it really does take longer because you have to send a letter. You don't have to send a no, return. No, you, you, can, you can do it on the phone. Oh, you can do it at the phone yeah, now? Oh, okay. And in fact, you can do at least one of them online. Okay. Okay. Very good. Yeah, because I... I remember looking to see, suggesting online as well, and I, I, okay, very good. The way I describe it to people is if if you freeze your files, you go from instant credit to credit in three days. And, you know, I actually remember when it would take three days to get credit. Right, right, exactly. But, um, yeah, interesting, interesting. Mm -hmm. So the security freeze. That that was a good thing. Uh, uh, Another area is... Seen, Wait, before we go on, yeah. Joan, I just want to say, if uh, even though you were talking about the $5 for... Um, for 65 plus. Yeah, for 65 plus or the $10 for regular consumers, if you're a victim of identity right. theft, if it's, it's free. I just wanted to mention yes, that. if a police report as a victim, yes. it's free. Okay. As it certainly should be. Yes. And, and, and also, um, this has been true for years, but it, it's amazing how few people know it. If you are a victim of identity theft in California with a police report, you can get one free credit report every month for a year. Yes. It's like free credit monitoring for a year. Exactly. So. And if you're in another state and you're listening to it, you can only get two free credit reports in the year that you're a victim of identity theft, meaning two from each of the credit bureaus. And right. then you can get your free annual credit report.com also. So, yeah. Right. Although, you know, Joan, I just... Annualcreditreport.com. Yeah, annualcreditreport.com. Not free credit report, not free exactly. credit report, but you can get a free credit report at annualcreditreport.com. <laughs> but you know what? I just I was just speaking before even this conversation between you and I. I was just talking with one of my clients and he is having trouble getting his free he he did his fraud alert he did his police report and he is having trouble getting his once uh, once a month free we, we credit have instructions report in I, I, I know we had, we had to look into just how to do it we uh we have instructions in our um victim checklist on our website okay on the identity theft page there's identity theft victim checklist and it tells you about and it's slightly different for each one of them Okay, but he he um, he yep. has been saying this is my second one that I'm asking for and didn't get it. So it's just kind of interesting that um, yeah. Check out the process that we okay. described there. If that doesn't work, let me know. I will. I will. We'll I will. Okay. Check that out. Very good. I, mean, I didn't know that you had. That's wonderful. Yeah. So still Joan, by the way, Joan has fabulous. The Office of Privacy Protection at privacy.ca.gov has a whole section for consumers, another one for business, all sorts of um, wonderful resources available to consumers and victims of identity theft as well as businesses. So let's go ahead with what else passed this year. uh, Other ones that happened last year, still in the identity theft mode, and then we had had a further improvement this year has to do with the jurisdiction of cases. So if, which isn't that common, um, the identity thief is actually uh, caught and, and brought to trial, um, the alleged identity thief, w- one of the challenges has been where do you take them to, to trial since this is a crime that can occur um, sort of remotely. So the thief may be somewhere else, and the victim is, in, is here in Los Angeles or in San Diego, and the thief might be in Sacramento or Iowa. Exactly. So where you, you know, the victim can't go to court in Iowa. Um, and that's It would be of, very expensive for them to do indeed. that. Indeed. And, it, you know, that's been a, a real challenge. And gradually we've been biting away at this, and so that as a result of SB 612 last year and SB 226 this year, the situation now is 
that the trial can occur in any any one of a number of jurisdictions. It can be where the victim resides. It can be where the information was used. You, you sort of get to you get to pick the ju- the you may have to get, have a court hearing to decide which one it's going to be. You can also, which is very interesting, uh, if there's one um, offender or or sort of gang, and, and this is often the case, right. who is committing multiple offenses against multiple victims in different places, you can bring it all together and try it as, as one in any one of the counties. And the benefit of that is then you've got a lot of charges. Right. So each one might be not a lot of money. Collectively, it's a lot, so, so that the penalties can be greater. Yes. So we're, we're getting better, more appropriate um, uh, penalties um, and, and facilitating and uh, applying those penalties to the perpetrators of this very real crime. Exactly. That's perfect. Okay, what else? Okay, and in the, the breach notice world, we've, in the past couple of years in California, California, we've really been focusing on a new kind of personal information. I mean, it's not a new kind of information. We've been newly focusing on a specific kind of personal information, medical information. Yes. The original breach notice law was really focused on financial identity theft, somebody going out and getting credit in your name or getting access to your accounts and using it. And so the kind of information that, if breached, would bring about this notice requirement with your social security number, your driver's license number, your bank account number, your credit card number. Mm-hmm. And then a couple of years ago, we added medical or health insurance information. And then just in 2008, effective 2009, we, we made some even more stringent notification requirements for certain, in certain situations regarding medical information breaches and the, the, the notification requirement is uh, medical fa- health facilities that are licensed by the California Department of Public Health, so this is like hospitals and clinics, that if they have a, a, an unauthorized access to patient health information, that is somebody who, shouldn't, who doesn't have a treatment-related need to, or, or, or you know, payment or business need, to access that information, people who just want to browse like celebrities' health records, or right, like what happened with uh, exactly. Fawcett and others, yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. that 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 is that is a breach requiring notification within five days, right? Not as soon as possible, given time to figure out what happened, but within five days, and that that took effect this this January, and just this year, it got modified slightly to take effect next January to say that means five business days and and to allow, uh, to sort of align it with the more general law, which says if law enforcement says don't notify right now right. because we're, doing we're, a we're sting. about to capture yeah. the bad guy. Yeah, yeah, we're going to do a sting. Uh-huh. Yeah, and, and it's always up to the, in the general notice law, it's really interesting to look at some of the situations. It's up to the entity that had the breach to make the call. I've seen some cases where law enforcement was saying, no, don't notify right now. We're going to catch the guy. We we don't want to tip him off. And the the entity that had the breach, since they'd already seen evidence that the information was being used, they didn't want to wait. Yes. They were willing to let you know, they, they wanted to protect their people, and so they went ahead and notified anyway, which in that particular case I think was a very good call. Yes. And isn't there also um, a fine? Yes. And that's a biggie. I mean, so that's something. two levels of fine. Yeah, yeah. The 25000 for yep. per patient record so or something? So the Department of Public Health can, can impose fines on civil fines on the, the facility. Furthermore, the Department if a licensed healthcare provider, a doctor, a nurse, uh, you know, a pharmacist, whatever, was involved, then the Department of Public Health can turn them over to one of our kind of sister agencies. They came into being when we did, the California Office of, of Health Information Integrity, Cal OHI, as they're called. Huh. And, and they now have fining enforcement authority on, on healthcare providers under the Confidentiality of Medical Information Act, which is California's health privacy law that predates HIPAA. Right. And it's been in existence for a number of years, but it hasn't had a lot of enforcement. 
and it, it you know it took too much. Now um, Cal OHI can investigate and enforce. So it could be the case that there's a breach, and the in a hospital, and the hospital had very good policies and procedures, and you got a bad actor mm-hmm. who wasn't following them. Right. And if the bad actor is a healthcare provider and gets or, or employee and gets turned over to um, Cal OHI, then Cal OHI. So the, the 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 hospital may not be fined, right? But the individual, but, but the individual may be. I wonder if they could also be like lose their license. Uh, and, and it even says specifically that Cal OHI can also refer them on to the uh, state licensing board. So there's a whole. This is taken very seriously by by these laws now. Well, we've had some serious breaches with yes, Patrick Swayze and Farrah Fawcett and other people. Well, and, and there are the the, the really frightening uh, newly discovered thanks to Pam Dixon and the World Privacy Forum to to a large extent. Um, The medical identity identity theft, theft, where there's not only often enough a financial aspect, which costs either the patient or potentially an insurer or a hospital, but there's also the the, the really scary part where if if somebody else's records are in my medical file because they got treatment in my name, I might get the wrong treatment later on. Or, or the wrong blood transfusion. Exactly. Yes. We're speaking with Joan McNabb, who is the chief of the California Office of Privacy Protection. As you can hear, she's very knowledgeable. She's a privacy expert. She is a certified information privacy professional for government. She is a Poneman fellow. She is a wonderful person. And you can find out more about the Office of Privacy Protection and her great work at privacy.ca.gov. So we're talking about the newest and the best in privacy laws that just passed uh, 2009 and kind of following up 2008 and 2009. So let's go on. So one that I particularly wanted to, to bring up, a brand new one that was just passed that will take effect in January, is one that we, that we developed and, and uh, sponsored. And this was AB 1094. The, the author was Connie Conway. And it, it is a modification to existing law to address, it's a modification of existing law on disposing of customer records securely. Yes. Uh-huh. And what we wanted to address specifically is the problem of records that have been abandoned. So there's no real owner left. So a company goes out of business or uh, a, a sole practitioner of some sort, a dentist or something, goes out of business, dies, disappears, whatever, and Somebody, often enough it's the landlord or a storage facility, ends up with boxes and boxes of digital or paper patient records, customer records, financial records, records containing lots of sensitive information. And this this custodian, in effect, who ends up holding the bag, um, is going to have a cost whatever they do with it if they shred them, it's going to cost money. Right. If they uh, store them forever, it's going to cost money. The thought of them going through, going, filing through them and trying to figure out who they are and contact people is a bit horrifying. And what happens all too often is they end up in a dumpster. Yes. And there's nobody to go after. Now, we already had a law that said that when you destroy customer records, or when you discard them, mm-hmm. that you have to destroy them completely. That you have to make them unreadable. Right. So that could mean, uh, you know... Burning, shredding. Or shredding, yes, yeah. Exactly. Uh-huh. And so what, that's the part that we modified. And we changed it from saying when you destroy to when you dispose of. Because we wanted to be sure that it also covered the case of, I'm getting rid of this computer, so I'm going to sell it on eBay. Right. And we, you know, you know, these bunches of computers that I had in my office, I'm going out of business, I'm going to sell them on eBay. Well, if there's still customer information on those computers, that's a problem. Right, right. So that's, that's, con- that's subject to this requirement that it has to be uh, made unreadable, you know, and there are ways to do that with over- special overwriting software. So what's the safe harbor? The safe harbor. And there's also the, a, a safe harbor provision that's designed to address the, the, the dilemma that the what we ended up calling legacy custodian of abandoned records, that is the storage company, the landlord, 
who ends up with these boxes of records, who's, who's going to have to spend money to do something with them, right. and they're afraid they're going to get sued. So right. this says if they dis- dispose of them according to the statute, they can't be civilly sued as long mm-hmm. as they dispose of them according to the statute. Right. And what, what we really are intending to do, and we're going to do some follow-up best practices work in this regard, is give them this safe harbor in order to give them an incentive to provide for the possibility of records becoming abandoned in advance. So if if I'm a landlord and I'm renting office space, I'm going to say, okay, you're going to have customer records, right? Okay. If you're going to have customer records, I'm just thinking of this as a possibility because somebody suggested it. I'm not necessarily saying this is what has to be done, and the law doesn't say this, but as a possible practice. I'm going to take a special deposit, a records deposit. Right, right. And if Like a security deposit. Exactly, just like that. So when you move out, you take your records, you get your records deposit. You don't take your records, I get your records deposit. Now I can pay to have them shredded, pay to store them, you know, now I can do the right thing with them and not be left with the possibility of putting them in a dumpster. That is so important. I don't know if I told you this story, but a couple years ago, Lloyd, my husband, who is a general contractor, you know, he spends time at the dump. It sounds funny, but he does. <laughs> and um, he went to the dump and he saw all these banker boxes, okay? Mm-hmm. And he brought, he looked inside because he knows how crazy I get about uh, papers. Exact, yeah, yeah, about papers being out there. And... I got to tell you that there were files and files of very high-profile Orange County business people with things like social security numbers. I don't know if it was an estate planning office, but we had all sorts of stuff. So he put them in the truck and brought them home to me. And I was I was trying to find the attorney because I, I saw the name and I could not find. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I don't know if he died or what, how long ago or mm-hmm. what it was. So I just paid to have it shredded. That's all I did. You know, know, interestingly enough, the bar, the state bar, will take custody. Hmm. That is one of the few. When we started getting calls about this sort of thing in the past, I thought, oh, well, we'll call the Dental Association or whatever. You know, right, right. Kind of Accounting, asso- and, yeah, the CPA Association. Right. right, and everybody regarded it as you know radioactive waste, and I don't want to touch it. The bar has a whole program of dealing with deceased or missing attorney records. There are also requirements on attorneys, but in the case that they actually become, you know, unowned, contact the bar. Yeah. Well, what I did is I just, I put it with all my stuff to be shredded, and I just shredded it myself. that's certainly a better idea than leaving them out there in the dump. Yeah, yeah. I was a little freaked out, and actually a couple of the people that I had their records, I called them and said, would you like to come and get them? We found these at the dump, and I don't know. They were quite upset. But, yeah. um, but you know what? I just, and then some of, I didn't really want to upset people, so I just shredded them. I just figured they were old, old records. They were like 10 years old. Yep. So I didn't want, I decided I didn't want to, you know, even upset people. And mm-hmm. so I didn't want to get yeah, all uh, crazy and, and, about it. So I just shredded it. And, and sometimes abandoned records, like in the case of, of uh, one that had come to our attention years ago, it was a, from a storage company that had um, records of a, a CPA who, who had been deceased for 10 years. Yeah. Um, and those records are not going to be originals anyway. Right. So... Uh, you know, that didn't seem like, th- that's one case. How about the case, and this did happen, um, of a, uh, a dentist who abandoned everything, and now here are these brand new medical records. Oh, my goodness. Quite challenging. As far as I know, the attorney for the landlord of that office still has them in his office. Yeah. So, you know, I think at that point, I would I would probably, if there's phone numbers of the customers but, but, or the uh, patients, you know, I probably then, would. Then you have to go through this, okay, how do I know you are who you say you are? Yeah. You know, you, you're in a whole authentication nightmare. Yeah, yeah. See, that's why after I made the first two calls, I decided yes. not to call again because I thought, I'm doing somebody a good, I'm being a good Samaritan and yep. it's taking my time. So that's when yeah. I made the decision that it should have been shredded. I'm shredding it. Yes. I don't care. I'll pay, you know, it was only like three or four more boxes and yep. I, and I paid like $6 a box to have them done by, you know, the shredding company. Yep. I just decided it wasn't worth it. You yeah, know, exactly. And imagine if it had been hundreds and hundreds as in the many cases that we've, we've been. Well, then I would have called you, Joan. Oh, thank you. Please. <laughs> <laughs> and anybody who's ever been involved with those doesn't want to know. So when we get our little 
little working group together made up of some of these storage mm-hmm. companies and <laughs> landlords and, and privacy advocates, and we'd right. like to have you participate, yeah. Mari. Mm-hmm. We're going to look at, okay, because we've amassed most of the laws in this area now. Here yes. are the places where we know that they can, you can contact to get help. Here, here, here are the laws that may apply. Now, what, what are other appropriate practices? Yes, we're gonna, yeah. Um, and I think the other thing is that we have so many really wonderful laws, but most people don't know about them. That's yeah. why I'm so thrilled that you're coming on to tell the UCI community and our business community, people driving by in Orange County, because people don't even know what the laws are. Well, it's, it, it is hard to keep up. We all have a lot of things going on in our lives. Sometimes I think I'm nuts to be following these things. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, it, it probably would be a really good idea for um, the, the the contracts, like you said, to include a security deposit. Like mm-hmm. I think I love that idea mm-hmm. because you get it back if you if you don't abandon anything yeah. and you've shredded it, you get it back, and that's all. I mean, yep. it's absolute. And yep. if you don't, that's you know. And I I don't know even how those things got to the dump. It could have been family members just throwing things out, which I've seen many many times. Yes. Or, you know, I mean, the same thing maybe should be there. It should be something that these estate planning attorneys should be advising people that when you're going through homes and um, or you're going through businesses, what to do to make sure that you shred. That should be an That's advisement, you know, um, or the court, you know, yeah. when you go through uh, probate. Or, or the trust attorneys should be saying, yes. this is something that you need to be uh, aware of. There are a couple of, of uh, federal bankruptcy laws that do address this in kind of narrow circumstances, but not, not broadly, and I, I won't go raving on about that. Let me tell you about a couple of other okay. new laws that I think okay. are, are interesting. They're kind of minor, minor little tweaks, but they both are in interesting areas of online privacy. Okay. One is a tweak to a law that passed a couple of years ago regarding uh, uh, public officials' information on online sort of data uh, directory sites like PeopleSearch, ZabaSearch, you know, where you look up. It's like phone books online. Yes. it's, it's, It's information, basically, residential address and phone number. So a couple of years ago, a law was passed that allows a pretty broadly defined category of elected and appointed officials in California um, to demand, to, to make a demand uh, th- of any um, website that is publishing their residential address or phone number to have that removed, which is not an easy thing to do because there are jillions of websites. Right, and then they copy each other. and then, yeah. yeah, and, and some of them are just windows on other ones. And So we, we developed some materials and did some work to assist, and the group that's most concerned about this is law enforcement. Right. And judges, and, you know, logically. We work right. with the California Judges Association and came up with some forms and some procedures for doing this. And so that that got slightly amended now to um, re- put some penalties on a site that doesn't remove it in response. Is this AB 1010? No, this was, this was AB 32. Okay, okay. Um, to put some penalties... Uh, on a site that doesn't remove it, and to require them to make sure it isn't reposted, because as all of us know, right. the wonder of computers, you know, this happens in credit fi- credit reports too. You know, you get something removed, and it, another computer pops it right back in, even though the people who removed it for you were terribly sorry. They can't control those computers; it just keeps happening. Right. Well, they can, of course, it, not necessarily easily, but it can be controlled. And, I think this is an interesting law, this right for public officials, and I think it's worth considering whether this shouldn't be extended to any individual. Um, many of these, not, perhaps not many, some of these websites that publish this kind of information, which is in phone books, um, have an opt-out mechanism, sometimes not very easy to find, sometimes more easy, but most of them don't. Right. And, and some of them you're on that you don't even know you're on. Oh, mostly you don't know yeah, you're on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I went through, and we, when we were doing this, preparing our materials, I went through, and um, all the ones as I was finding them, I, I removed my information, and they pretty much, it's pretty much stayed out. Right. I'm, I'm impressed. And it was ironic that in some cases, to, this information posted on the website, I had to write a letter to make them take it off the website. I couldn't do it online. I know. Isn't that ridiculous? I know. I've done that, too. Isn't that the most ridiculous yes. thing? Here they have it online, and you cannot write to them online. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 
And another one that's in the online world, um, again, this is a small little tweak, but it's in an area of great concern that we don't really know how to address with the laws, I don't think. And this, this is regarding social networking sites. You know, oh, there's a yeah. lot of concern that a lot of us have, a lot of people have, about um, the kind of information that young people in particular, but not so young in some cases, are putting on their MySpace and Facebook pages. And so we're not talking about, we're talking about stuff people put up themselves. <laughs> right, right. Yes. And um, the, this new law, which was AB 362, requires social networking websites to have a notice that says, you know, when you post a photo here, people can copy it. Right. Now, in a way, that seems like a small thing, um, sort of a, a duh, and yet just, just bringing that to someone's attention, you know, is a, is a good reminder. One of the real concerns about um, the online digital world is it, it, it feels often very intimate. I'm here on my Facebook page or I'm sending an email and it's just me and my computer talking to my friend on the other end of a wire or whatever. But in fact, of course, it isn't. It's up there where a lot more people can see it depending on how you have your, your page configured or how secure your email is. Um, and even if you decide, oh, no, I don't want to do that, and you take it down, it, it's still somewhere. Yes. Other people still have gotten it. So if, it, if the notice is done in a way that really gets noticed, which is challenging, um, you know, it might make some people think twice before they put the kind of pictures that are going to interfere with their opportunities in the future. You know what happened, Joan? I got a call from a woman this year that was, um, she had been a model, and she found out, and I don't remember exactly how she found out, that someone took her face and put it on a body on a German website. Mm-hmm. And it was a porno site. Oh, God. And she was really, you know, a high fashion model that this was going to really mm-hmm. uh, ruin her reputation. And so that she told me this was the kind of, this is an identity theft case, mm-hmm. you know? And it, it's 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 a appropriation of... Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, you know, I told her what to do. I gave her some suggestions of what I thought she should do. And and she said that she'd call me if it didn't work. But basically to, you know, to write to them, to send her the letter, to send who she is and to ask them to take it down that she never put that up. And, you know, I said, I don't know, do it in English, even though you're not German or if you can Mm -hmm. get someone to help you write it in German. So, I mean, she did get it down and everything was okay, But that is really scary when you and yeah. we've had that a lot with the cyberbullying. We've seen yep. where teachers here in Orange County, California, um, their face was put on other bodies and put in position. You know, with Adobe, you can do anything. Yeah, and that's a problem for teachers. <laughs> yeah, a real problem for teachers. And, and so the, the persistence of of the digital, you know, is is something that we really don't always take into consideration. Yeah, it never goes away. No, so that's a, that's. I think it's a good start. Yeah. AB thirty two. I don't know if it's, it's really going to make. It. Start. Yeah, I was just going <laughs> to say, I don't know how much really uh, no. enforcement or effectiveness it's going to have, it, but it's it at least is bring it to the consciousness. So then maybe in a few years we'll have something better. And there, there's a lot of uh, criticism in the privacy world now of the whole notice and choice approach to privacy protection that that notices can only be so effective and notifying people that they don't have a lot of choices isn't, isn't always empowering them. No, I think it frustrates them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we'll give you this notice, but you can't do anything about it. Mm-hmm. But your yeah. choices are do it our way or do it yeah. our way another way. Yeah. So what else passed? Um, well, those, those are kind of the, the, the more noteworthy ones. It, it wasn't a, a great big bill, a big year for new privacy laws. Right. Not, not that more and more laws uh, are always better and better. Uh, I think one of the most interesting thinking about the need for new privacy laws is, comes from Dan Solove, if you had him on. Yeah, so we've had him on. Yeah, yeah, every time he wrote a new book, I put him on. Yep. I loved his most recent one, The Future Reputation on the Internet. Yeah. yeah. Dan has been on. Yeah. Yes. He yeah. told you about the dog poop girl. Yeah, yeah, yep. I read that book, yeah. Yep, that, that was, great. was Yeah. Well, he's got one called Understanding Privacy. Right, And, right. and he's looking at the ways that our, our laws don't line up with privacy 
problems, privacy harms, because we we have we are not approaching the consideration of what the harms are, and, and pretty much most of our laws now seem to regard identity theft as the only privacy harm. Right. And, and when it's things like um, uh, your harm to your reputation that isn't quantifiable, but is still appreciable. Exactly. <laughs> you know, it's not if you're not a model who makes money on your face. Nevertheless, there can still be a harm. Right, right, so exactly. He, he and, it, and it could be a financial harm because if you're not going to get uh, new employment because they think you're a tramp. Yeah, but there are harms even beyond financial harms. Oh, yeah, the, the embarrassment, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And, and one, one of the things that he looks at in his schema is things that a, a type of things that people perceive as a problem, such as having my name and address and phone number all over the web. Yes, yeah. it's in the phone book. The phone book is not as accessible as online. And it might not be in the phone book. You might be like yep. me where you want it, you pay not to have it in the phone book. Yes. For your personal. Yes. Yeah. There was another bill that was dropped that was pending this, this year that would have uh, removed the uh, prohibited charging for unlisted numbers. What happened with um, Submitian's bills, SB20, with the data breach notification? Well, this bill has been around before, and the governor right. has vetoed it. Right, um, right. The, the last couple of years. And I think the case hasn't quite been made persuasively yet. What, what that bill would have done was t- two main things. There is amendments to the breach notice law. One, it would have made some specific requirements of what information should be put in a notice, You know, what kind of things should people be told about how to protect themselves. Right. Like, I think that one, didn't that have that, to specify what kind of information was lost or stolen? Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. And, and what, what steps can be taken. So that was one aspect. Just the, the, it would have said, it would have amended the breach notice law to say, here's what you have to say. You have to cover these issues in a notice to individuals. And then the other part was you have to give a copy of the notice to the attorney general. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in both cases, the, the governor's veto message found that the case hadn't been made that there's that, that prob- a problem is being solved. And I, I think there can there needs to be some, if, if somebody wants to move ahead with that bill, the, the case has got to be made better. And I read an interesting article that just came out that might help make some of that case that is in IS, the uh, Journal of Law and Policy for the Information Society that comes yeah. out of the uh, Ohio State Law School. Yeah. There's a very interesting study in there by Curtin and Ayers um, analyzing, and, and they, they based their study on the publicly known breaches. So if you had really every breach you know, in a time period because you got because somebody got a copy, you know, because the government got a copy, right. then you'd have a better database. But they ended up because they had a pretty large body, which may or may not be representative since it isn't every breach, um, they were able to say, here's the kind of problems that are happening in healthcare. Here's the kind of problems that are happening in higher ed. Here's the kind of problems that are happening in financial services. That's useful. It is useful. Yeah, because then they can, you know, once that's made apparent, then everybody can look at it and say, well, what are we going to do about mm-hmm. it? You know, even if you don't want to have laws about it, at least you can set up best practices. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agree. I don't understand why he, I still don't really get it. I don't know what kind of things are happening behind the scenes because you've got the, both both sides of the legislature were in agreement that this needs to, to happen. So, huh. So what do you think's coming up? What, what, you know, I know we've learned from the legislature, sometimes things don't get passed the first year, but you come back and they get massaged and they they happen again. So what do you think is going to be on the agenda for legislation this year that that might be viable? Well, I think we'll still see more little stabs at doing something about some, some things about some of the online concerns. It's, it's a very hard area to legislate in for, for a whole lot of reasons, um, jurisdictional questions about how far into the internet can California reach. You know, we may think we rule the world from California, but it's we don't necessarily rule cyberspace. <laughs> right. Um, w- one area, I, I think identity theft will continue to be a concern, and there's an interesting uh, law that is just being implemented uh, related to identity theft that that didn't just, that passed a couple of years ago but didn't get funded regarding a certain kind of identity theft that is particularly problematic, and that's identity theft against minors and 
the law I'm talking about is specifically foster youth. Right. So uh, right. you know how how difficult it is for a minor who discovers upon, be, I mean, a, a young person who discovers upon becoming 18 or 20 or whatever and going out and applying for a job or getting an apartment or, or you know, getting a car loan or applying for a student loan and discover, oh, my God, you've, you've got a whole big credit file and it's awful. Right. Somebody was using your identity all these years and you didn't know. Right. Well, imagine if, if that person is a newly emancipated or about to become emancipated foster youth. Right. Who's facing so many challenges, and then... Yeah, it doesn't even know how to deal with the world, and they're thrown out at 18. And yeah. Then, and then to discover that they can't run an apartment or get a, you know... Yeah. It, it's particularly awful. Yes. So a law was passed a couple of years ago, and the funding has just come through, and we've been working on developing procedures. And what the law requires is in the year in which a foster youth becomes 16... A credit uh, report is to be, uh, you know, one from each each of them is to be pulled on each of them, and then they are to be referred to somebody to assist them in uh, dealing with any signs of identity theft. So the procedures for even determining that there is a credit file on a minor, as you know, are, are manual and tricky. That. Generally, when a minor is a victim of identity theft, somebody's using the social security number, but not not the name. And so, when you do right. when you do the the standard matching algorithms that happen with the automatic pulling of the, nothing comes up, and that doesn't mean everything is fine. Right. So you have to go. We have a fact sheet on how you get your child, how you can check for your child, and what might be signs that your child is is a victim. And it's kind of a manual procedure. So we've been right. working with the credit reporting agencies on on developing some special procedures for this subpopulation of foster youth. Right, right. It always comes back, even if somebody's using a different name, mm-hmm. um, if somebody's using Susan Jones, but they've got Joan McNabb's social security number, right. eventually it's going to go back to the person who's got the social. Right. You know, but it'll be longer, I mean, yeah. until it gets to collection. So that's my experience with victims. Is uh-huh. it, it always, you know, they say, eventually oh, synthetic. all the bad stuff ends up on your report. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> you know, first it's like, you know, the synthetic. They say, oh, it's synthetic, it's synthetic, and there's no harm. I mean, you know, baloney, because I keep seeing the, yeah. the one who's harmed is the person. In fact, you know, talking about that, I had a guy who was, um, he turned 16 and his mom wanted to go with him to help him get a car. And sure enough, and I may have told you about this one, this one this year, because I think she had first gone to you guys. Anyway, she called me and uh, we found out that somebody had been working in his name for years. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it didn't appear like credit, but it was on his credit report, not the one he could see, but the one on the creditor that the creditors could see. Interesting. I yes. thought that the individual saw more than what the creditors see. No. Uh-uh. And when we got it, and in fact... it's different. Yes, it is different. And so what happened was she couldn't get... Her, her credit union was turning him down. Mm-hmm. So she couldn't get a copy of the report that they got. Yeah, I, so remember, she, I remember when we talked about yeah, that. Yeah, so I got it. I was able to get it because she said, well, have a, your attorney write a letter. And so they faxed it to me. Then I called her. And sure enough, it was not a credit account. Right. It was this weird thing that they're doing now that they're reporting for, you know, somebody working in his mm-hmm. name that the that the social. But we were able to work it out and he was able to get the thing. But that's a weird kind of thing. That, that, and that doesn't come up in the standard free annual credit report procedures. No, it you're, does you're not. You're not going to uncover that. So, And not only that, Joan, it doesn't even come out in the one that you buy. Yeah. It, it only goes to the creditor. So if you don't get, this is another thing that I've been saying for years, yeah, is know. that we should get a copy of the exact copy of what the creditor gets. Because I learned this back in 1996 when I got my credit report, and then I was able to demand that the creditors give me the copy that they had, and it was entirely different. Mm-hmm. Entirely different. So that's another, I don't know if we could ever do legislation like that, but that that to me seems like it's critical to, to see these kinds mm-hmm. of things that we're talking about. So, so many mm-hmm. good things. And then I think, oh, wow, Amanda's saying it is time. Oh, my gosh. I know. Yeah. Oh, you know what? We could talk for ages. You are wonderful. I oh, always enjoy you, having you. Great. 
Yeah. And thank you for educating the California community and, and my audience. And you're just terrific. And we so much appreciate all the good work that you do. My pleasure. Okay, so just give your website and we will say adieu. It's www.privacy.ca.gov. Okay, thank you so much. You're welcome. We'll talk to you soon. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank. Join us every week here on Monday mornings, 8 to 9. And also visit our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy where you can see our upcoming guests their bio is on there and all the good things that they do. And you can listen to archived interviews and download podcasts and write us about what's important to you in the information age. Thank you. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.